You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of The Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate Radio Show, recording live from the Diamantina Shire and the Old City District here at Desert Rock FM. Now, you're joined today by, of course, myself, Clancy Overall, editor of the Batuta Advocate, and, of course, editor-at-large, Errol Parker. Today we have a guest who actually, you know, it's it's quarantine. Everyone's quarantining right around the world. We're getting pretty lucky with the guests because there's a lot of people sitting at home. They're learning how to use Zoom. Uh, they're learning how to keep in touch and they've got a lot of time in their hands and uh, because of that we've been lucky enough to land ourselves an interview with Sir Bob Geldof I'm not sure if he appreciates the Sir um, uh, Australian Sir maybe in do. some circles yeah you know. yeah when I'm, when I'm trying to get into a crowded restaurant or upgraded <laughs> yeah in, in the Commonwealth you know. <laughs> yeah it'd definitely fly, fly here. in the Republic but anyway no guys it's, it's just I've done you know I ran out of uh, papers to talk to in the lockdown, you know, so you're sort of bottom of the list, really. So, really? you know, finally I got there, but great, you know. I'm glad we beat Murdoch to you. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, where are you based at, at this moment? All we got, obviously, was a was a Zoom uh, address. I'm in Kent. Yep. I'm in Kent. i got a place in Kent about 50 miles out of London. The weather has been the hottest spring ever i think it is it's the driest may so in those terms it's been uh i got the family around because mm-hmm. they bailed out of london as well which was the epicenter it's moved now so they're around and i have the most mowed lawn and the most cleaned car ever <laughs> and as soon as kenny, as soon as kenny rogers died i noticed a vacancy <laughs> so i grew a white beard that's my contribution <laughs> to the standstill <laughs> Yeah. You're at the point now where you're mowing you're mowing uh tennis courts. My chin. No, my chin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now after thirty six years, the Boomtown Rats have released a new album and it's also accompanied by a book that you've written and a film that's coming out soon. Just to take it back to the start, you've come out of South Dublin, you've gone into these odd jobs you worked in a slaughterhouse you worked on the roads what i really want to know is is that your first real gig in music was in in vancouver i mean that's not really a real epicenter for young irish like it is down here in australia i mean how did you find yourself in vancouver all those years ago uh one of the gigs as you said was working on the roads and uh i could drive heavy machinery, the Terex T24, if you've ever seen them, they're the big things with 12-foot high heels, uh, heels, that would be good, wheels, <laughs> uh, with an engine in the front and back and a digger in the middle. I could I could drive those things. There were jobs in the winter. The roads stopped building in, in Britain in the winter because of the rain and that. You just can't really dig up the roads. Jobs were advertised for mining gold north of the Yukon in the Arctic Circle. Right. The money was insane. So, so not really so Vancouver. Good. <laughs> yeah. So I was an illegal immigrant. I worked in the abattoir then in the slaughterhouse because they'd only let you work in the Arctic if you had a woman with you. And I'd just been dumped. And uh, so I had to go back to Ireland as the dumpee and, you know, try and woo 
my true love to come with me up to the fucking Arctic Circle, which, as you can imagine, was, was not that attractive, <laughs> having just been dumped, stinking of awful, as I worked in the slaughterhouse. You know, she eventually agreed to come with me. The deal was that she, the women would be on 50% pay for six months while they trained, and then they'd be on equal pay with men. It's kind of like, I think, up around, um, up in the, the top end where the mining yeah. is, you know, over in Western Australia. And they'd fly it down uh, then every three weeks for 10 days in, in Miami. So yeah. it, it was it was, it was was a huge deal. And we I was an illegal. I, we went across Canada on the Greyhound. I pitched up in Vancouver to get my, put, get my illegal papers together, which took about a month. <laughs> and I got bored and I, and I went down to the hippie part of town yeah. it was around the time when Rolling Stone magazine was a local magazine in San Francisco uh, the Berkeley Barb all those sort of things there was an underground paper there called the Georgia Strait I saw the bookshop they had at a little ad saying people wanted to work in the bookshop so I went in got a job in the bookshop then I went upstairs and I just lied my way into a job I just said I was a visiting journalist on holiday but as I had no yeah. I went on holiday I had no examples of my work the accent resume yeah <laughs> yeah uh, so send me out to review local bands if you don't like it don't print it so it turned out it was okay I got to be the uh, music editor after three months then I got to be the circulation manager because I was fed up people weren't reading these pearls of you know wisdom yeah. <laughs> that were being put and, uh, and then after about a year, the Mounties got their man, which was me. Yeah. Um, I got to be, I, I, I was a smart ass. I was on the radio. People were arguing about the opinions. I was writing about music. Music was shit, you know. <laughs> um, I was, you know, I, I think it all ended when I got a record by the Stylistics, who were a sort of uh, vocal group. Yeah. And the review was, this is shit. And that was it. That was the review. <laughs> and, uh, at, which point, at which point I was ejected from Canada and I went back to Ireland and Ireland was still mired in a, an absolute of nullity. And I started a band to try and alter that. I've got a quote here that you said in, in 1975, correct me if I'm wrong, you only started a rock and roll band to, quote, get rich, get famous and get laid. How, yeah. how did that work out for you? And bring peace to Ireland. Well, uh, I got rich. Uh, I got famous. I said in the piece that I only wanted to get famous. I've been poor all my life. Uh, it's shit. Mm -hmm. There's no upside at all to poverty. It just is. Uh, yeah. Poverty is a, a sort of prevention of human capital sort of thing. Yeah. I wanted to get rich um, for obvious reasons. I wanted to get famous so I could talk about the things that bothered me. And uh, I want to get laid because I've been brought up in Catholic Ireland of the yeah. 1970s. <laughs> Believe me, I desperately wanted to get laid. And so, uh, and rock and roll was the vehicle for, for all of that. But largely the band needed to get out of Ireland. Yeah. Yeah. Ireland you know, that was it. And I don't know if you've seen the film, which went out on the BBC last Saturday. It's called Citizens Boomtown, like the album. I found it interesting. I'm in the thing, but it's like, it's like, you know, when you look at old movies, your parents took you at seven, yeah. Yeah. you're kind of looking at it and there's you and you're kind of, okay, there's me cute, but it doesn't feel like you particularly. Yeah. Yeah. And that that's kind of what it was like. But uh, what was interesting and for me anyway, if no one else, was that I hadn't realized that none of us had families, none. Yeah. So in my case, my mom died when I was seven. 
the only job my dad could get was selling towels around the countryside of rural Ireland, where I doubt they'd even heard of what a fucking towel was. But um, uh, so uh, he'd go away on Monday and come back on Friday. So there was no authority in the house, no one to make me do any work. So when I bumped into authority in school every day, like the priests, it wasn't a good meeting. Yeah. Nah. Uh, I didn't. Un- I didn't understand what that was. So I get beaten, and then later I bump into a cop, and I couldn't quite understand how he had the ability to tell me to do things. So th- that was always a problem. Yeah. The other guys in the band, one had, and I didn't understand this until I saw the film last year. One had a brutally dysfunctional family. Yeah, right. But you know, we didn't talk about it. We're blokes, and you know, we just wanted to get on the band. And then the others were all packed off to boarding school at a young age. So that was really, I think, important when we fell in together in the garage in the back. There was a real need to bind together. Yeah, really. And then and then you enter into the economic world as you leave school, the state which you can view as the sort of larger family, if you like, Mm -hmm. uh, fails you also. It offers you no future whatsoever. And in Ireland's case at the time, we were mired in what was in effect a civil war. They don't call it that, but when 3,600 people are murdered, it is. Mm. And when it's with the tacit complicity, if not overt complicity of the national government, it's murder. And when the church is busily abusing the children of its parishioners and shutting up about the murders, and when the business community is shutting up because they're making money out of it all, then something has to give. And there was this great silence, sort of cultural suffocation, if you like. Yeah. And so the only thing to do is make a noise. And so yeah. that's that's what we did. That's one thing I want to ask about. What were the pubs like in Ireland when you finally found a publican that would let you kids do whatever you wanted? There was only there were there were three gigs in Dublin. So really? you've got to understand there was no rock radio, there was no rock television, there was no rock magazines, there were no posters for gigs. You know, it was just nothing. And I just spent a year writing about, you know, what was beginning to happen in the early 70s. Bowie, Roxy Music, Lou Reed. That was where I was at, the Velvet Underground sort of thing. Uh, not crazy about what other stuff was going on. Uh, I thought this was kind of the way forward. Very basic stuff like uh, Muddy Waters and earlier. So those sort of things were where I was at. Or The Who, yeah. uh, you know proper stuff like that the bands were copyists they were you know either country rock but really good ones there was a guy cheap thrills was a band which was really good there was a funk outfit called night bus so you know crap names yeah you know night bus it meant nothing so calling yourself the boomtown rats you know people objected to that electric light orchestra Yeah, please. Thank you. Terrible Goodbye. Names. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah. but but you see, you've hit a major point here, guys. Yeah. Once the definite article left rock and roll, it went shit. Yeah. So once you stopped having the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the Kings, yeah, the right. Who, and the Pink Floyd, and, yeah. and you and and you started getting Genesis. Yeah. Yes. You know. Uh, you know. Electric Light Orchestra, Electric Shite Orchestra. You know, like you know. <laughs> Nirvana you know, could have used the, the, the Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, exactly. But uh, <laughs> but you had uh, yeah you had this whole generation. The big thing about punk was bringing back the definite article. Yeah. The Sex Pistols, the Clash, yeah, the yeah. Boomtown Rats, the, the Saints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, yeah. 
So where did the name Boomtown Rats come from? Yeah. I mean, like, like from a rank outsider, from being out of Ireland at that time, you know, you could say it's come out of the Troubles, but from what I've read, it, it comes from a much different place. The Troubles really didn't affect us, as I've been saying. They yeah. would be page three. Yeah. of the paper though they were they were 100 miles north only of us but in Ireland given that it's 200 miles in length more or less and Dublin stuck in the middle and then it's 100 miles to go away in the far uh, west it's small but because it was so alien to us the troubles which sound like a minor dose of political flu yeah. was in fact 3,600 murders yeah. so I kind of object to that they, 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 they try and dampen it down it was terrible yeah Uh, in our case we were just kicking back against the republic which was mired in some sort of economic and cultural aspect of the 19th century or something you know it was just terrible to live there at the time luckily ireland rocketed into the 21st century over the last 15 18 years Mm. and became a proper country but uh the, the boomtown rats came because I was reading uh, Woody Guthrie's um, yeah. biography, Battle for Glory. Woody Guthrie is the great poet of the impoverished and dispossessed in 1920s, 1930s Depression America. And, of course, Bob Dylan's master, yeah. uh, Springsteen's master, and great influence. I liked uh, all these early guys because when I was a kid, the music I was listening to, obviously, was the Stones and all that, Bob Dylan, and that I was 10 or 11. And they were telling us, Mick and Keith were proselytizers. They were saying, it's not us, it's Muddy Waters, it's Lightning mm. Hopkins, it's Howling Wolf. You know, hello? Muddy yeah. Waters, yeah. Howling Wolf. I mean, are these forces of nature or people? In fact, both. Mm. And Dylan was talking about Woody Guthrie and, in fact, imitating him entirely. So I started listening to these guys and just thought it was magnificent music. And I read then... Guthrie's biography, but I re- was rereading it in 1975, and we had a couple of names. Uh, I'd come up with the nightlife thugs because I wanted a name you could shorten, yeah. and the so thugs. the thugs sounded like you know, and <laughs> night bus cheap thrills are the thugs. Well, yeah. I'm going to see the thugs, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted it to su- I wanted to suggest something that you would hear or see before you even heard or saw it. Yeah. Uh, but the night before the first gig, I was re- rereading Bound for Glory for no particular reason. And I came across a bit where Woody Guthrie was 11 years old and he was in some town where they lived and the boom chasers came to town, the guys who followed the latest oil rush. Mm-hmm. And they found oil uh, outside Woody's town in Oklahoma and these new families came in with the new kids and new kids wanted to join the the gangs, the kids' gangs in town. But the old gangs wouldn't let them in because they were migrants and, you know, forget it. So Woody split from the old gang and set up his new gang, which only allowed the new kids in. Yeah, right. So the head of the old gang goes to Woody and says, are we going to have a war? And Woody says, yeah, whatever you like. The head of the old gang, who's 12 or 11, says, you, 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 you. Boomtown rats you. Right. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> fuck yeah. I don't want to be part of the old gang. I'll take you on. And I, we went, we were sitting in the pub before the first gig, which was in a school. Uh, I said, listen, that name, you know, Nightbike Thug said, yeah, it's okay. 
and say, what about the Boomtown Rats? And they said, yeah, that's better. And once it had a hinterland, once it had a reason. But yeah. the truth of it is, seriously, once I got the name, it made total sense to me, rather than just playing music on a Friday or Saturday night because we were bored and nothing to do, suddenly, because it came from Woody Guthrie and there was a, an aim behind the name, the band had intent and purpose, clear intent and purpose. So when I began writing songs, I began writing about the people I was working with in the slaughterhouse. This wasn't just a slaughterhouse of animal. This this was an abattoir of human dreams. They were stuck. We were stuck. That became our first number one, the first Irish number one, the first new wave number one. So I just started writing about all the people around me because of that name. I, yeah. Now I knew, knew what I should write about. So it was more important than, you know, just picking some crap pun like the Beatles, which has got to be one of the worst names in rock and roll. B B E A T. Get it, guys? You know, like them. They keep the beat. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You entered, I guess, uh, the charts and you began this career with this band with an undertone of working class solidarity. Uh, was it, did it become a bit of a ballad? Was it a bit of a, you know, uh, similar to what Jimmy Barnes was for us or, you know, what Bruce was in the in the 70s and 80s? There's always a counterculture and there's always a rejection of a counterculture. Yeah. It works both ways. Uh, and it's a sort of tired trope when you get involved in it. Mm. But we, had a, we weren't necessarily involved in a counterculture or that we thought we were. The moment I got on TV and this, they go into this in the film, I thought I'd only ever be on TV once. Yeah. You know, I just kicked off about the country. Yeah. And so there was a group of young people, Bono uh, and his mates, who were about 13, 14. These sort of people, Sinead O'Connor, watching this and going, finally, yeah, somebody's just talking about what it's like to be here. Yeah. So we made a noise. And by talking about it, burst that bubble of silence and began, you know, it, it helped to change things a little. And then by making records and focusing on getting them into the charts, because that's how you get your message to a broader audience, mm -hmm. uh, you had to change music. But we arrived in London in the middle of what we now know to be a massive cultural revolution, which was the punk thing. And it was beginning never mind the bollocks by the pistols had yet to come out it was a couple mm -hmm. of months away we'd finished our first album but we weren't coming out till after the pistols and when i heard their record i thought we're fucked that's so great a record <laughs> uh so so whereas you you had jimmy barnes who's sort of a working class hero and bruce mm -hmm. too we kind of had phil Lynott from thin lizzie or van morrison i guess yeah. But there's no equivalent to, to Jimmy or thing. Our equivalent would be the Saints, yeah. um, who were a great band, yeah. uh, you know. And when we arrived in London, our first gigs, because punk was a London thing, and they were very snobbish about these paddies who just arrived off the boat. Yeah. So we are friendly with the Pistols because Johnny's Irish, you know, um, yeah. first yeah. generation, extremely. And, um, you know, his family is, I went up to their flat in um, uh, Finchley and, Dickensian poverty. Mm -hmm. The clash were put together by Joe and stuff like that. So we played with the Ramones and the Talking Heads, and we played in schools mm -hmm. at four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, <laughs> so, if you can imagine all these kids with mullets and like Bay City roller outfits <laughs> staring incredulously, you know, at 
the Boomtown Rats, the Ramones and the Talking Heads at four o'clock in gymnasiums. That's how we started. <laughs> yeah, right. But you were aware that something profound was happening, definitely. Yeah. It was exciting to be <clears throat> in it, mm. right at the very centre of it. But again, there was so much rivalry, you know, you were whose record was better, who, who was selling out faster. Uh, and then there was the credibility thing. A lot of it was to do with an idea of saying the right things. And by saying I wanted to get rich, get famous and get laid, you weren't supposed to say that because it was the rejection of all the values that had led to pop singers yeah. mm. like Jagger or Rod Stewart just talking about the length of their limos, the height of their country yeah. houses, the you know the width of their platform heels, that sort of shit. Nothing mm. to do with life. It was exciting. It was even more exciting to throw records up the charts mm. and get to see the world and have Molly Meldrum throw you off countdown, you know, which is what happened to us. You know? yeah, yeah. He threw a lot of people off countdown. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're saying a lot of profound things were happening, but you, you obviously took it one further. You began talking about Africa, probably, you know, at least from the Australian perspective, before a lot of people were talking about what was happening in Africa when it comes to poverty and, and, and famine. What led you there? Can you explain that to us? Well, the punk thing was hugely politically directed you, you you began saying that it happened during the time of Thatcher and that yeah. uh, and that was important um, so I'll put it in perspective inflation in the UK in 1976 when we all emerged was 27% so that's zero economy that means you don't have a job ever that's yeah. you know for the generation emerging from school forget it no future as Johnny Rotten said there is no future in England's dreaming it's a fantastic line in New York, New York was bankrupt. The police were not policing. Uh, the fire service weren't answering the calls. You could barely drive there. I was there. You know, it was bankrupt. And they pleaded for help from the federal government. And Gerald Ford, the president on television, said New York dropped dead. So, of course, you're going to get the Ramones yeah. Yeah. and Blondie and the Talking Heads. And you. Of course, you're going to get the Pistols and the Clash in London. Yeah. Of course, you're going to get the Boomtown Rats in Ireland. We didn't know each other. We didn't know why we were playing fast and loud. We didn't understand that. When we all got together, we understood it was a thing. So that was essentially political, certainly cultural. When I was 13, I started anti-apartheid in school with my mate Mick Foley to organize a march to stop uh, the Springboks playing, uh, the South African rugby team playing Ireland. Because yeah. uh, I'd heard about the cultural boycott uh, Bob Dylan was reading James Baldwin, so I read James Baldwin. James Baldwin was reading Alan Patton, a book called Cry the Beloved Country, so I wrote that. I read that and I learned about South Africa. Was always interested much more in, in music and politics and saw the two as the same. Mm -hmm. I never saw a difference. And so, much to my dismay, Foley and I organized this march, and thousands show up for it. These two school kids at 13. So I understood you can <laughs> you can tilt the world a little bit, you yeah. know, by just getting stuck in. At 15, 16, I, st I stopped going home. There was no one at home anyway. There was just me in this cold, you know, Ireland, February, November, fog, rain, freezing, yeah. dark house. Forget it. I was there. Um, and I, I go into Dublin. Mm -hmm. I met up with a crowd called the Simon Community, which sounds religious, but there weren't. 
Uh, what we do is at six o'clock in the evening, we get uh, all the vegetables that the grocers hadn't sold and they give it to us. And then at 11 o'clock at night, the bakers would give us their first round of bakery for the morning. Yeah. And we'd make a huge fire in the middle of Smithfield Market. And then all the lost people would gather about this fire and we'd make soup. So you had the bag ladies and bag men, the schizophrenic old men and women. You had the lot, there was no divorce in Ireland until relatively recently, 12 years ago or something. So the males of the family would get together and tell the husband, time for you to go now. And so he'd be out in his ear, nowhere to go, eventually start showing up at work, still with drink on his breath, unshaved, he'd lose his job, he'd be on a park bench, they'd show up. Uh, the hookers, the, you know, not the glamorous hookers of Hollywood legend, but really, really pinched, way-faced, thin, Work, working girls, little girls, yeah, yeah. with their with their pimps beating them up in front of me with baseball bats because she asked for one of them asked for an orange squash. An orange squash is just diluted orange; it's not even orange juice. Yeah. And this, I remember very well, this little thug in a leatherette coat and a sort of stooges haircut like not Iggy Pop I mean like the, the three stooges uh, beating her the sit thing with, and I was I was 15 I was scared shitless and I, you know I didn't I, I wasn't physical and I could do nothing and I still to this telling you about it I'm ashamed yeah. and so this was going on so all these books I was reading about elsewhere Steinbeck uh, Studs Terkel Woody Guthrie uh, James Baldwin was happening here in Dublin and so they were the things that always bothered me. So when you, if you listen to the rat songs, they're still about the stuff that bothers me. Mm -hmm. So when I said, I want to be famous to talk about the things that bother me, that's all I'm interested in. I don't want your velvet rope bollocks, you know, it doesn't interest me. I feel a complete fucking wanker in a limousine, mm -hmm. you know. Now, if a Volkswagen comes to pick me up or a limousine, I'm getting in the limousine. But I still feel a complete wanker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you can't, well, you can't criticise the man's platform. That's my opinion. Nah. You've, got to, you know, you've got to take the roomy seats, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, we started with this name to change our own lives because they were awful. Uh, by making a noise, we helped a little bit to change the country, we think. That's what everyone in the film says. By making hit records, you get to change the music. And then one day I coming home at night, I turn on the TV and see what's happening in Africa. 30 million people, million, 30 million people mm. about to die of, I mean, appalling hunger. I mean, the images were just shocking. Uh, in a continent, and Australians don't really take this on board in the same way they don't really take on board that Indonesia is 60 miles from Darwin. They don't take that on board. No. They know it is. But they, so yeah. we don't take on board that Africa is eight miles from Europe. You can throw a yeah, rock from Spain. Throw a rock, throw yeah. a rock from Spain. You know, so here is the richest continent in the world still, and the poorest. Yeah. And in 1984, we had the Common Agricultural Policy, which, which was set up after the war to make sure Europe never starved again. We paid taxes to grow surplus food. We paid more taxes to store the surplus and most disgracefully, we paid more taxes to destroy it. America was doing the same by subsidizing its farmers with the Farm Bill, which yeah. produced surplus, et cetera, et cetera. Eleven, eight, eight miles south was 30 million people were about to die in agony. Fuck off. Mm. 
So the political moment arrived. Uh, I was in a rock band that had been extremely successful, was on the downturn. I was available. All I could do was write tunes. So it was coming, it was October. Um, I called up my missus, who was uh, the host of the big rock show at the time, The Tube. And I said, who's on it? And it was Ultravox. They just had their big hit Vienna, Midjour. I spoke to Midge and I said, listen, I don't know if you saw that thing. Uh, all these new kids that had sort of pushed now the punky thing aside, Duran Duran, because Thatcher was now in power. So they were emblematic of that, really. Spandau Ballet, The Police, you two were coming up on the inside track. I knew them all because of my missus on the tube or because they were contemporaries. Yeah. So I said, let's do a song. Let's sell as many of these and that's it, we're done. Of course, do they know it's Christmas becomes this phenomenon, which neither I nor Midge yeah. expected. I get a call from Michael Jackson and Harry Belafonte. Right. They want to do it in America. So I go and do that. And then having done those two, the logic of doing Live Aid was obvious. You know, join these two ideas yeah. up. Was it harder to corral the love of your life up to the Yukon or was it harder to corral a group of the biggest pop stars in the world together into one room to sing Do They Know It's Christmas Time? What was harder? Dude, you're, you're forgetting my story. You see, <laughs> yeah. this is it. This is the I got so fed up with shit journalism, you know. I thought, you know, and I go... <laughs> Fake news. I, I said, <laughs> I, I said to you, I was working in a slaughterhouse. <laughs> she, she was getting free sausages every night. She was getting, she was getting kidneys and liver and sweetbreads. You know, it was the awful that Whoa. did it. I, I couldn't offer that to Simon Le Bon and you know, like, <laughs> you know, and Bono. You know, they were, but it was easy. That's the truth. You know, I'd known these guys. I've been in rock and roll for 10 years by that period. Sting is literally a day older than me. So, you know, when they were starting, they'd come and see the rats. Bono, I knew from Dublin, he used to come and see us in the basement of a hotel. We played this sort of tubby little kid would come in. <laughs> and, uh, you, Brian. Know, <laughs> you know, so it was, uh, uh, and then I knew the Le Bon used to come to this place. I am now this house here. Uh, weekends and just crash out on the floor because yeah, you know right. when you're going for it you're you're seriously going for it yeah so that was okay and this stuff about hey he goes in the room really you know you're with people who are rivals it's nothing to do with the egos so you kind of think fuck they just made a great record you know so i saw a great bit of film i'd never seen on this uh, film about the rats george michael is there he said, like, you know, well, I've got one day off, you know, I could do with the rest, but I'll show up here. He said, I'm a bit pissed off because I've written a Christmas song myself. <laughs> and my missus says to him, oh, well, sing me a bit. And he goes, no, nah. and she says, sing me a bit. And he goes, last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day. And like, uh, and she said, that's quite good, but it's not as good as Bob's. And he goes, I don't think so. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty cool because yeah. it is such a good Christmas song. You know? <laughs> Not as good as Fairy Tale in New York, but pretty good. I need to ask now your your honest opinion. There may have been a bit of revisionist history around uh, of late. The movie that recently came out about um, Queen. Yeah. D did it really come down to uh, Freddie Mercury turning it on on the day? <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, um, I haven't seen the movie because. Uh, 
I don't listen or to myself or look at myself or read anything about myself because it just drives me nuts. Uh, this sounds name droppy, but believe me, Roger is a seriously proper mate. Like you know, yeah. you know, hanging together. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the the reality is that Queen were almost done. Mm-hmm. Uh, they finished up an Australia World Tour. It hadn't been very successful. And Freddie, they were all a bit fed up, not knowing where it was going to go. So when I called them, I was calling them because Harvey Goldsmith, the English promoter who promotes them, was was doing was putting together Live Aid. He was the one who put the fiscal thing together. And Harvey said, you've got to get Queen. I went, eh. You know, again, they're not called the Queen, so there's a problem there. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so uh, I said, okay. But I didn't really mind if they played or not they weren't essential to the gig so when i called them raj who wasn't a big mate then but you know we knew each other and liked each other he said oh it's uh, he said i don't know bob we're, we're, we're tired the atmosphere isn't good you have to speak to fred fred called me about two days later he goes bobsy darling what can i do for you <laughs> and i said um and i said well you know, he says oh we know what you're doing it's wonderful we all appreciate it but i'm not sure it's for us sort of like that and i said well why not and he and he then said i don't know what we're going to do i might go off and do a solo thing so i i really sometimes will put a moral arm lock on some guys like with Pete Townsend of The Who he said he'd never ever get on stage with Roger Daltrey again and I said but Pete if The Who do my generation six million people minimum will watch and of those six million two million will put some money in the pot if you don't do get together and do my generation we've lost that yeah. 20 million quid you know, so he goes, for fuck's sake. So, you know, <laughs> uh, but um, with with Roger, I really wasn't going to do that. Or with, with Fred, I wasn't going to do it because it didn't bother me that much. So I eventually said to Fred, I said, look, Fred, if ever there was a stage built for you, it's this. And he goes, well, what do you mean, darling? And I said, well, darling, the world. <laughs> and he said, yes, I think. I think I see what you're getting at, he just said. So uh, they came, and what was really different was they really got what it was about. And I also think they they thought it was going to be their last gig ever. So what they did was put together a jukebox, a medley of their tunes. I'd explain to Freddie that it's that I'm calling it the global jukebox. So I don't want track three, side two of your most obscure album. Fuck off. Yeah. I want hits. Three yeah. hits goodbye. <laughs> and they sandwiched all their hits, the hooks of their hits, which, you know, were okay. It was a bit overblown for me, a bit operatic for me, not my thing really. But when you take the hooks, they're fantastic pop. Yeah. Yeah. And they jammed them together brilliantly. And so they came out believing this was going to be their last hurrah and it was to the world. So Freddie was going to go out with a bang and they were going to tell people what they'd done by doing all these hits. So I'm running around trying to organize stuff, freaking out that maybe the money isn't coming in quick enough. And I'm up in the top gantry at Wembley Stadium running towards the broadcast area. And I hear this immense noise. 
And I look over and it's Queen. And I go, Queen? You know, people are going nuts. And the sound from the stage was better than any other band. That's for sure. Yeah, right. The sound guy had it completely down and they sounded amazing. Amazing. Now, I was never convinced by Freddie, a very unlikely front man. You know, the teeth, the crap moustache, the awful outfits, the sort of static poses he'd do. I thought, no, not really. You know, <laughs> I was wrong. And uh, so, but they went off and without backstage. So, you know, Bowie's there, you know, fucking Townsend's there, McCartney's there, Bono's backstage. Everyone's going, Elton's going, what? Literally, what? Yeah, right. Queen? You know, I mean, seriously, they just went to a whole other level for themselves yeah. and they felt it because I spoke to Roger I went dude you know and he said that was amazing Roger will tell you now they were about six minutes in before he understood there was a difference between their normal stuff okay yeah. uh, most most bands went to some other place in their performance if you look at Live Aid if you get the DVDs or download on YouTube if you look at it Bowie's somewhere else in his performance I mean amazing yeah. You know, Elton's just thrilled with the day. McCartney hasn't played for years, doesn't give a fuck that the sound goes down because Pete and David and I come out to help him sing Let It Be and the whole crowd just take it over and he just shuts up. So <laughs> they were someplace else. Why, I don't know. But what the film says is that when they played, that's when the phone lines collapsed and people phoned in. That's not true. <laughs> Everyone thought they were just amazing. But where the phone lines collapsed was when Bowie played. David, what people don't really take on board about Bowie is that while he was the great artist, he was also a really lovely guy, a really a cool guy, a fun guy to hang with, you know, like really kind man. And, you know, which is kind of weird because you don't think that of the yeah. austere Bowie. So I showed Bowie this film I've got an editor from Canadian Broadcasting who couldn't show the sh movies he'd made of starving people because it was too obscene almost. And he was cutting the bits together to archive in a hotel in Addis and he was listening to the car song Who's Gonna Drive You Home on his Walkman in yeah. the 80s. And he was cutting to that beat unconsciously. And when he'd finished, he played it back and suddenly realised that the words of that song took on a different meaning when he played with this horror. So who's going to pick you up? when you fall down, who's going to drive you home tonight? And I played that to David when he was asking me, what song should I do? And I said, hold on, let's look at this. And David Bowie sat beside me in this office, sobbing. And he said, I'm not doing four songs, I'm doing three and I'm introducing this. And I said, David, if you stop, they go and make tea. And they're not coming back. I've lost the audience. And he said, I don't care, I'm showing this. I said, when they show this, they're definitely turning off the television. Yeah. So I don't care, I'm showing this. So, okay. So Bowie does Heroes at the end. <clears throat> Place kicks off. And he goes, I want you to remember what this is for. And he shows the film. And if you look at the DVD or YouTube, <clears throat> you'd see both in America and the UK, these beautiful young people, I mean, really, girls at their most beautiful flowers on their boyfriend's naked shoulders in the heat of this hugely hot day. And they look, they're all like this, they're laughing and smiling, it's the time of their life, but they've forgotten what it's about. And then Bowie directs them to the film, and you can see the girl's arms coming down. And then they 
they start crying and then they try and get off the boyfriend's shoulders and the boys are just staring with horror at the screen. Yeah. And that's when the phones collapsed. Really? Literally all, everywhere in the world, phone lines just melted down. And that's when the money just came gushing in and didn't stop. So, so that, that's what actually happened. So, 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 so Bowie had a bit more of a marketing brain. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I, I, I think that you know Queen was definitely took the day. Yeah. I think by anyone's standards, yeah, yeah. that's what the press said, and I said I wouldn't say it, but I absolutely believe that to be yeah. the case. Everyone did. You two went over the top. They were on. They were on the crest. They thought they'd blown it. They had a huge row at the side of the stage. They were going to broke break up because they thought Bono had blown it by going into the audience but in fact it pushed them over into superstardom Dire Straits Brothers in Arms album had stopped dead at 350,000 post Live Aid it did 3.5 million so <sighs> millions of bands did well out of yeah. it but loads loads stayed where they are are made no, but the point is that none of those bands not a one and I'm, I'm telling you this did it for any other reason than yeah. to be de- there on the day. Led Zeppelin reformed. They didn't like each other. Black Sabbath reformed. They didn't like each other. The Who reformed. Uh, the Beach Boys reformed. Duran Duran reformed. Clapton gave up a week in, in Vegas just to fly to Philadelphia and just play. Yeah. Nobody was there for any other reason than just to do it. So did you take what you said to Roger Taylor um, at Live Aid and kind of apply that to Roger Waters for Live 8? I mean, because that was really the, 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 you made pigs fly then. And that was really Pink Floyd's last ever gig with the surviving four members. That was it. That's it. They they hadn't played for 25 years. I'd read, we needed an ending equivalent to Live Aid 20 years before. Yeah. And I'd read in an interview by Nick Mason that the only reason they could ever possibly, he could ever possibly see them get back together was something like Live Aid. Nick is a friend of Rogers. I got the number, I called Nick and he said, he said, we'd need a reason outside of ourselves to get back together, but it'll be Roger and David. Yeah. And I knew them from doing the movie, The Wall, you know, I, I had yeah. done the, the, it's the nice. Wall movie. It's nice to see you've got your eyebrows back after that. You know, it's good. Yeah, thanks. Good. Um, yeah, good. I'm glad to see you like Queen and the Pink Floyd. What's he doing? What's he doing on this? Why, you're the editor in chief. Yeah, fucking t- throw him off. Queen and Pink Floyd. You know, you know, you know he's, he's, he dares to talk about music, let's say. Um, uh, uh, the. Uh, so I call Roger and he says, well, I'd do it, but, you know, David won't. Um, I played with Gilmore at the Festival Hall in Britain. I'd done um, Comfortably Numb, I think, with mm-hmm. him. So I called David and uh, he said, absolutely no, I'm not going to do it. He said, you're joking. And I, so I said, well, look, can I come down and speak to you? And he said, no, you can't. And I said, well, I said, hear me out at least. And he said, oh, for fuck's sake. So this took a while. They're all very, quite posh accents, the mm. deployed. They're all from and, Cambridge. Um, you, see, I put, mm. you, see, you see, I put the definite article back in there, that Floyd. I made them valid again. Helping and, him um, out. Helping him out. So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I go down and I'm halfway down to his place and I have to change trains at East Croydon. And I'm there and the phone rings. 
got you, you know, don't come. I've changed my mind. I don't want to see you. And I said, fuck off. I said, I'm in East Croydon, the shithole. <laughs> and I said, and I said, you know what? Like, I'm not changing. I'm coming and meet me at the station. So he goes, fuck this. So he meets me. I'm sitting in the kitchen. I lay out the argument. And so from a Pink Floyd perspective, the argument was, you never actually said goodbye. I said to millions upon millions of people who bought your records. I mean, countless millions. Dark Side of the Moon is still in the top 200. You're pretty, good at, that. You're pretty good at that moral arm lock, are you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it needs to be, yeah. So, uh, so he said, I don't care, I don't care. His wife was there making tea and, you know, wasn't having, sort of, she wasn't helping. So anyway, I said, think about it. He goes, no, I won't. So we're there for about an hour and a half. And I said, give me a lift back to the station. So he does. He goes, it's going to be no, Bob, he said at the end. And I said, well, let's see. I go home and I write a letter to him, a long letter, laying out his points and my points. The phone rings. It's, it's uh, Waters. He, what did he say? He said, no. And I called Nick. And I said, it's going to take Roger calling David. That's what it's going to take. So I laid the groundwork. Roger Waters calls me and says, have you got Dave Gilmore's number? I mean, Waters doesn't have Gilmore's number. <laughs> I, I do. So I give Roger what Dave Gilmore's number. And three days later, he calls me and says he'll do it. So many ghosts were laid to rest, which I was happy about. And they were very generous. They allowed us to film the rehearsals because they're notoriously secretive and let us use all that stuff. So once they were in, they threw themselves in. And to your point, on the night, it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, yeah. just fantastic. I mean, the figures were enormous. You know, they came on just before Paul, I think. You know, Paul and Bono had opened it with there was the Beatles. It was 20 years ago today, referring back to Live Aid. Uh, but people forget that it was all politics for me. Band-Aid was a 20-year pop. You know, yeah. first you keep as many people alive as you can. Then, you know, famine doesn't happen because you've got no food. It happens because you're poor. Mm -hmm. In Australia, there won't be a famine. You've got a lot of drought, but you buy in food, you import food, you do whatever. You're not poor. So it's only the poor die. And that's that's why I said, uh, you know, I want to be rich. It's shit, always. You know, it's it's a definition of lack of opportunity to be poor. It's a, it's a destruction of human potential. It has to stop, and it can, and it will stop. We've already eliminated 50% of the world's poor uh, since the year 2000. That's incredible, 50% of the extreme poor has dropped. For me, once I trawled through the horror of the things I had to trawl through, I understood that this was about economics. And the way to alter economics is to engage with the agents of change in our world, which is why I flew down to see Bob Hawke, which we talked about off air, I think, earlier. Yeah. And you, you start there, the number of people watching Live Aid had given us, you know, I think 200 million Aussie dollars or something at the time, maybe more at the time. And we had 650 trucks operating in Africa, 12 ships going up and down from Europe, et cetera, et cetera. But the big thing was the numbers of people watching 1.5 billion allowed me into the White House, into the Kremlin, into the Vatican, into the Reichstag, into the, into the Elysee Palace, into Downing Street. Into and you Canberra. began the political into Canberra you began you began the political well it was important because Bob Hawke gave us four Aussie Air Force transporters yeah. which kept Thatcher in there 
Thatcher was going to remove the 13 RAF transporters, which are <laughs> transporting food out of Port Sudan to Darfur, yeah. which was, you know, a thousand miles away. And so the argument with Bob Hawke was, if you bring the Aussies in, it'll force the Brits to stay. So the Aussies showed up that's, and the Brits had to stay. All the, all, all and the that's crews the best argument you could ever have to do it anything in this country is if it makes the english look bad we will be there first in Dude, line hand in hand I, with I, the irish I, I know i know where your head's at don't worry i've got you guys down you know and, uh, you know it took 20 years and eventually a generation come to power that were entirely consumed with the idea of live aid blair brown yeah. uh, osborne uh, uh cameron uh, Schroeder, Clinton, they'd all watched it. And I went through Africa with George Bush on, on, on the presidential plane. And, you know, Bush claimed to have watched Live Aid. And I said, no, you didn't, Mr. Preston. He goes, oh, yeah, I did, Bob. He called me Gelnoff. He said, yeah, I did, Gelnoff. And I said, you didn't watch Live Aid. He goes, yeah, I remember it very well. I said, one, you don't remember anything, but you certainly watched. And he goes, well, why do you say that? I says, because there was no country music in Live Aid. He goes, that's a good point. <laughs> so uh, uh, they were willing to do stuff, providing there was a new public behind it. Yeah. So that's why Live Aid happened. And yeah. the following day was the T8, and they eventually agreed to eliminate the debt of the poorest people. So this this... If you're in debt in, in Australia, if you've got a mortgage that you can't pay, it's done. You're over. You're crippled. Yeah. And that's what happens to countries. So they eliminated that and uh, doubled aid. So that's why Live 8 happened. That's why all these things happen for me. It's that end goal rather than the music. It just so happens that the music turned out to be exceptional. With the advent of the internet, it'd be pretty hard now to pick. There's so much mainstream. Exactly. There's so much mainstream. But when you were... You know, particularly the first time, you had so much you know, at your disposal, at your fingertips. You know, the crowds you were working in were at the centre of that. Yeah, you're completely, you're yeah. completely right. I yeah. mean, uh, these things really just wouldn't work again. I mean, uh, Lady Gaga tried to do a thing for the lockdown. I mean, it was, I mean, well done her, but it was pretty crap. You know, I mean, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I think the figures were negligible, really. How would you go nowadays trying to find the right K-pop band to include? That's how you get your numbers. It's, e it's, it's easy. You just get the one who's selling most on that moment. But I mean, you know, it's not going to have an effect because the, the internet has a weird um, pseudo intimacy. Mm -hmm. So it, it because it's constantly there and constantly, it lets in the light into the magic. You know, yeah. that's a terrible yeah. cliche, but it's true. Yeah. You know, your stars need to be at a distance. And previously, media by definition, implied distance. You heard it on a radio. You saw them for a moment on television, but you couldn't get to them. Now everyone pretends they're in their fucking front room yeah. or they're talk, Taylor yeah. Swift talks. They think they're talking all the time to them directly. It's a trick. Yeah. And because it's a constant, there isn't any uh, exclusivity to it. So I don't think it would work. Somebody will do something like this. And, you know, we still, I do Band-Aid every single day of the week. It still operates hugely. Uh, and we do a lot of stuff kind of online, which, you know, but it's more to do with meetings and stuff like that. So, you know, it wouldn't be the same. You know. Just one more question. If you could have any band in the world right now reform for another Live Aid type concert, who would it be? Limp Biscuit. The Boomtown Rats. <laughs> Other than the Boomtown Rats. We, we found the long game here with this new uh, new, new movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are um, you coming back, Bob? 
Uh, what do you mean coming back? Coming back to Australia? To, or coming just, back to us? Yeah, coming back to us? Are you coming back to Gundawindi? Because yeah, I, I mean, because I, I, that's I, our closest I, I, I big love, town that you go to. So <laughs> I know that. I, I mean, I'd be back. I loved it. That's the truth. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, everyone says, "Hey, I love in Australia." I actually do. I'm very yeah. much at home there. I've been going there for a hundred years, mm. and it's a good crowd. Mm. Good crowd. I laughed. They're very look. The culture of Australia is far more familiar to me as Irish than it is as English. Yeah, That's right. the, yeah. that the, my, the attitudes are very, hail fellow well met, less bullshit please, mm-hmm. you know, to fancy a point, you mm-hmm. know, that, that that's kind of it. And uh, that's very familiar to me and comforting to me. So I, you know, I drop off there, yeah, cool. And I don't feel weird or a distance, um, but it's an interesting place because it doesn't look like what I'm used to. So I'll be back in a second. We've talked to promoters and that, would there be any interest in seeing us? And no, you know, if somebody plays the record, yes, because it's a good record, got rave reviews, the film went through the roof, uh, massive response to it, which is kind of weird. Uh, radio is playing our stuff again, great. I know a lot of bands down there that I like. We go at the drop of a hat. That, right. That's the honest to God's truth. All but right. when it gets to be summer, you know. We'll book you in for the Birdsville races then. Yeah, great, whatever, whatever that means. Uh, I laugh anyway to go along with it. Having the clue to talk about. <laughs> uh, All right. So who would I put back who would I put back together again? Uh Nirvana. Yep. Yep. So um I'd I'd uh, resurrect uh, Kurt. The, the Nirvana. Yeah. Yep. Uh I'd do Oasis. Yep. Yeah. Um uh that would be hard. You know, they can't stand each other. Um Crosby stills Nash and Young, maybe. Well, we had Neil on both Twenty and, and Live Aid. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Uh, you, you know, and uh, if, if you're going to push me in one way, I'll take Neil Young, especially when he does the hardcore. His voice hasn't changed that much anyway over the past forty years. Uh, anyway, and, and I, I wanted to do the. Uh, yeah, I, I bought yeah, that record you know. he did with Jack White, mind you. I didn't mind it at all. Yeah. No, um, the, the, when he when he does that heavy guitar, forget yeah. Metallica. That is the heaviest guitar. The Godfather in of history. Grunge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it, it's like so. I've seen him a lot, as you say. He's still he's still he's still totally real. Yeah. You know, Neil Young. It's completely yeah. all there, and, and so he does yeah. uh, uh, the aid for the farmers too. Yeah, yeah, farm aid. Yeah. Yeah, he he does that. I mean, again, that's spun off of Live Aid because yeah. Dylan in Live Aid says, you know, maybe we should do something for the farmers. And two weeks later, Willie Nelson called me. Yeah, it's right. so cool. Willie Nelson? I adore Willie Nelson. Yeah, yeah. And he goes, do you want to, you know, maybe you can help me do this. And I said, Willie, you know, you just put on a gig and get your mates, you know. <laughs> yeah. So that that was that, so that was the first farm age, yeah. You know so the highwayman? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Just call the highwayman, Willie. <laughs> That um, when you can, because Johnny's dead and Chris can't sing yeah. anymore. You know, mm. really, that clip on YouTube of them at their best. Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. What a band, you know. What a, an amazing band. I mean, they'd be on again. You know, it, it, I'd put the Highwaymen together again if I could. You know, they'd be cool. Yeah, so everyone. But yeah. really, where I'm at myself is the day our album came out the day the tour was announced lockdown was announced two hours later yeah. so you know we were dead in the water um, yeah. we rescheduled the tour um, but uh, you know will anyone come to gigs 
for the next year? I mean, are you going to be absolutely sure you want to stand beside somebody sweating and jumping around? Well, there's you not know. too many cases here now. That might so. mean you're touring here before yeah. there, I reckon. Because you just have to come here yeah. and guarantee with a test. But, yeah. Yeah, but but seriously, even then, mm. are you going to throw yourself into a twenty thousand festival? You know, in where this country, it's just yes, lurking yes, around? of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know how reckless they are. <laughs> In this country, it's... it's We've had a few friends that actually have released albums similar time to you. Have you ever heard of the DMAs? They're an Australian band. And they they just come back. Uh, They got one last tour in of England. And they were saying that it actually feels like you just kind of... The wind's taken out of the sails. But not only that, like they get to see the result because everyone's still listening to music. They get to see the popularity of the album. But it does feel like you're suspended in time. Like the tour's coming, but you don't know when. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Like, you know, I'm I'm paddling, I'm treading water mm. here. Mm. And I, you know, I'm taking the opportunity to speak to you guys and stuff like that. But I hope we get together and that nothing results from it. But if it does, we're in deep trouble. I mean, you know, it's not fun, this thing. It's yeah, a serious no. thing. Well, Only time will tell. Thank you for joining us, Bob Geldof. That was um, obviously... Very humbling for us in our original, you know, Queensland newspaper to get you on air. Yeah, uh, we all we all remember seeing you on TV. I, I think Australia would have been one of you know per capita most tuned in to uh, to Live Eight and of course Live Eight. Um, yeah, because there was not much else going on here in the eighties. <laughs> no, but you started it. Yeah, you yeah. guys actually began it because when I got up in the morning and turned on TV, yeah, right. Yeah. Live Aid was it's Live Aid was, was happening under you guys. Yeah, yeah right. Well, I did. I did that thing. What, what's the name of the TV show? A comedian begins with R. Rove. We, we, Rove. Rove. Yeah. I did Rove, Rove, and they did the thing. Yeah, they did. The, I was guest on the thing. They were doing this thing, Kiwi Aid. You know, <laughs> about a country, about a country very far with problems. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they've still got a lot of problems. Let me tell you that. <laughs> but, they'll, they'll beat us to getting rid of coronavirus. So that's but for rugby sure. Rugby union's not one of them. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Bob, thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's been very nice. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Fun. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.